Assalamu alaikum all. Welcome to another episode of In Conversation, brought to you in association with the Reorient Journal, part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. So on the last episode I mentioned that I'd been watching uh, Lost and I remarked on the representation of Muslims. And almost as if to reinforce this point, I recently got to season three where Saeed, the Muslim Iraqi character, uh, prays on a boat. Only prays in a way no actual Muslim would recognise. They could have at least done a bit of homework, but hey, Hollywood is Hollywood. Elsewhere, Imranophobia seems to be reaching critical levels in Pakistan, and we pray, inshallah, justice prevails in that situation. Uh, Ramadan is very close, uh, so we pray that we all have the opportunity to make the most out of the blessed month. Uh, this is the final episode of season 8, and inshallah we'll be returning post-Eid with season 9. I am delighted to announce also that the second International Critical Muslim Studies Conference will take place at the University of Leeds, 16th to 18th of June. Uh, the submission window for abstracts is now open and closes next week on the 31st of March. For more information, please visit www.criticalmuslimstudies.co.uk. Now, today's episode centres on the fourth symposium that the Critical Muslim Studies Project and the Iqbal Centre for Critical Muslim Studies have held, this one being on Muslimness. Uh, this symposium features Abdulkrim Vakil from King's College London and Ovamia Anjum from University of Toledo as your speakers and is ably chaired by Mona Makinjan. Let's listen in. The second international conference of Critical Muslim Studies Project would be on 16, 17, and 18th of June. And the, the, the deadline, the, sub, the submission deadline would be end of this month, 31st of March. So, and now, uh, if I just wanted to tell about the structure of event today, we would have our presentation firstly, and then we are going to the discussion part. And at the end, we will have the Q&A session. Uh, now I would like to introduce our first presentation. Uh, today we are honored to have Abdul Karim Bakil from King's College London from among us. Abdul Karim is a lecturer in contemporary Portuguese history and head of department in the Department of Portuguese and Brazilian Studies at King's College London. Abdul Karim, we all are here. Thank you. So. Most of you know I haven't updated my description in 15 years, so I'm no longer, not only am I no longer head of department, but that department has ceased to exist three <laughs> generations ago. But uh, thank you, I am uh, pleased to be here, and um, it's my honor to be, to be here. So um, two things, uh, not by way of excuses, but by way of explanation. Uh, I was asked if, since I was coming here to uh, take part in the uh, exam of um, a PhD, on which extreme congratulations to the candidate who is present here, um, whether I would have an informal conversation with the students. This somehow turned into <laughs> a full presentation with a title and everything. So I quickly scrambled to write some points down on the train. Uh, however, what is behind those points on the train is part of ongoing um, thinking and research project with which some of you are already more than familiar and others less. Those of you who are already more than familiar is because 
those of you who have taken part in the sort of uh, series that we've done of workshops, of uh, symposia and so on, know that it is an evolving conversation. At the same time, and so to them, it, there will not be much news in this, to, uh, because we are uh, talking across uh, the different uh, three uh, organizations that are behind this um, uh, meeting today, some of it requires being said from the beginning again. So let me start with um, something that uh, is uh, contrary to the whole and entire process by which you are recording this. Because I had, in the last time that I spoke at a Leeds event, I don't even remember which, said that I wish it was a workshop because I wanted to do something. Now, this still isn't a workshop, but I'm going to do it anyway. So given that this is in partnership with the Iqbal Center, then I want to start by reminding of a line from Iqbal that I already mentioned in one of these previous meetings, which is when Iqbal, uh, a line from Tulu Islam, says, the storm in the West made Muslims Muslim. Right? The storm in the West made Muslims Muslim. And what I want you to do for a second is to turn to the person next to you in groups of two, including at this table, and to just very quickly think about, do, do two things. I want you to um, think about, um, say two things, which I'm then going to uh, um, presume what they are, about how you read that line, okay? The storm in the West made Muslims Muslim. Okay, just have a, a quick word with the person next to you, and and. Okay, so I hope that in this you each in the two in the pair were able to say something. So I'm going to presume. Uh, the following. I'm going to presume that of the two things that you said, one will have betrayed your disciplinary framings. So you will probably have thought perhaps about, in order to comment on this, I would have to think about when did Iqbal say this? Uh, which storm was he referring to? Who was he addressing? And in a sense, to think about that performativity of, of the, what was he trying to do with those words. And those of you who may be a little bit more familiar with it know that it was at the Anjuman Humayati Islam meeting of 1923, and therefore that it was a speech, and it was before an audience, and it was in response to a very specific and concrete set of, of, of circumstances. And you may have tried to uh, explain what this meant in relation to that particular context. So sort of for those of you more familiar with the kind of uh, Jameson kind of thing, it would be the context of production determines the way that you read it. And then the second thing is those who would read it in the kind of, uh, 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 rather than a new historicist, the kind of uh, uh, formalist reading of, of picking up the text, seeing how it speaks to you, and essentially says, um, what does this mean to me? How, how does this speak to us? And it's the con context of reception that matters the most. So part of it, I wanted to accentuate that how we read and what we do with this betrays a certain extent the, the, the um, uh, contextual um, disciplinary aspects that you bring to it. The notion of a Muslim awakening, Overmir's first word immediately, Muslims were in a slumber and they woke from it. Now, 
those of you familiar with the poem know that he actually literally uses the word slumber and awakening, and that is uh, part of it. But the context of the storm is the First World War, it's Ataturk, it's uh, uh, Reza Pavlavi in Iran, it's Afghanistan, it's the Spanish defeat in the Riffian Wars, and it's the uh, colonial framing of the world, but that's really, really clear from first line to throughout that this is a historic moment of Muslims being able to once again uh, f flourish. So um, let's say that the next exercise that I would ask you to do, which is silently and very, very short, in your head, how might you now put this using the word Muslimness in a sentence? Either to describe what this line from Iqbal does or to reword the line from Iqbal but now put the word Muslimness in it. Okay. So, coming to our topic and, and my speaking here. Muslimness, why, what for? So at one level, it's about redescription. It's about dislodging the significations that are inscribed into the term Muslim and to, through them, think them and make them do things differently. That's the purpose of redescription, to get to the work of, for those of you working within critical Muslim studies, the ontic and ontological that uh, the term Muslimness does. So in the context of my own work, History of Muslims in Europe, this is propelled by a very simple but reflective reframing that I do in the very first class that I have with students, which is when I replace the traditional question as the discipline evolved, as the historiography evolved, which was to ask uh, where do Muslims come from, with a very simple and effective reframing of the question, which was when do Muslims come from. Now, the first reason for doing that is because the where Muslims come from is overdetermined and was overdetermined by immigration studies. So nation states, uh, culturalism, what Salman calls the immigrant imaginary, the assimilationist assumptions, and the positivism of it. So there was more specific kind of baggage that came from the sort of anthropological and sociological approaches that always studied where they came from in order to then see what they're carrying in their cultural baggage with them. And to understand the Muslims here, you have to understand the Muslims over there. So the when immediately dislodges that from the sort of um, positivist, empiricist, culturalist to the analytical. But... While this is, in my view, necessary, it is not sufficient. And it's not sufficient for two reasons. Because two strands of the literature, which do make use of that notion of a when, flash it out the, in, like this. One is to, um, it's, it's, it's reflected in the language, uh, which was when immigrants settled. And this essentially is expressed in the notion that single male uh, economic migrants uh, carried in the expression of one particular uh, uh, writer 
Islam in their suitcase and never unpacked it. But then, post-73, OPEC oil price crisis, shutting down of the uh, open borders. Instead, they bring their families over, and family reunification leads to this process whereby, because of the concerns over children, over wives, over uh, uh, traditions, over education, over uh, uh, the religion, and so on, they unpack the Islam out of the suitcase. So there is that notion in which the when is at least to some extent related to this aspect of when immigrants turn into Muslims. So there is an, a, a when there. The second one is that quite a lot of this um, element of unpacking the uh, ascriptive, the descriptive, is around the notion of the Muslim makers. So that this process wasn't somehow uh, a neutral process that just historically happens, but has a certain number of agencies involved in the process of making them into Muslims. So the, the, the dominant variations of this that you will be familiar with will be the sort of the Kenan Maliks, the Stephen Howes, the uh, Amir Muftis. So for Mufti in particular, in order to really push this to the edge, the, uh, the Muslims who, uh, or those who... Uh, claim and speak with the name Muslim, reveal a political vacuity from which you cannot come back. It's, it's really a, a, a dead end and a regressive one at that. From the point of view of Malik, for example, Kenan Malik, it's that the progressive anti-racism gave way to the reactionary faithism. From the point of view of how ethnicity is primordial, and Muslimness, he describes it, as you know, very polemically as a notion of an ethnic cleansing in which the Muslim replaces the, uh, the ethnicities that were there. So simply accepting that there is a oneness to the use of Muslim and to the self-description of Muslim doesn't in any way necessarily bring us closer to a project in which Muslimness uh, has the senses in which we use it in, in uh, critical Muslim studies. Because what is involved in that, in the recognition and the attempting to undo the use of the word Muslim, is the erasure of Muslimness. So why and how might we want to push for um, an approach that foregrounds the notion of Muslimness, and what does it enable to do that we don't simply do as well with the name Muslim? So one very simple uh, aspect on, or notion is the argument that when you, Muslim is somewhat inscribed by and trapped within certain theologizing discussions, which tend to be ahistorical in the way that it assumes who it is that we're talking about, and that the trappings uh, fall into the trapping of religion as a category on the one hand, and of theology as a language. And so what we want to do is to move from the ontic to the ontological, uh, as already suggested before. So what Muslimness does, let's pick up from the other end, which is the notion that Islamophobia is, a, is, that, is precisely that erasure, that denial, that disciplining of Muslimness. Two elements of it, racialization and Muslims on Muslims would be an aspect about the, the, uh, the discussion of Islamophobia that we, Muslimness can help to unpack. So this would be the following. That we're talking about um, Muslims as a political subjectivity. 
We can't do that when we're simply talking about Muslims, but we can do it when we're talking about Muslimness. So, for example, it enables um, certain immediate discussions that would get derailed or trapped into notions of takfirinus when you talk about someone being a Muslim or not being a Muslim. Uh, I have often told this uh, anecdote about being in, an, in Indonesia and hearing people saying to me, the head of such and such is a Muslim. And I'm extremely surprised because it would be enormously improbable that the head of that something would not have been a Muslim. But what they meant by saying that they were a Muslim was a particular kind of Muslim. So the, the, what is involved there is not a notion about whether that person has said the Shahada or not, or whether they practice Islam or not. It is about a particular positioning of what it means to be Muslim as a political subjectivity. So... Um, it enables Sorry, Muslims. Is this the last five minutes? I just it is the last two minutes. <laughs> okay, thank you, sir. So, um, it enables Muslims to travel because, to, for example, reframe discussions of Muslims in terms of the politics of blackness and the politics of Muslimness. Okay, the ability to place the discussions around politics of Muslimness with politics of blackness enables us to tell different histories that at the moment, for example, if you look at Robert Waters' work on, on, on blackness, you will see that it positions blackness as a political, but Muslimness as a theological, a regressive kind of politics. Mm -hmm. The second is that it enables us to uh, take the discussion into the, uh, to the Islamicate or to Islamdom in terms of talking about the dominant formation of, of, of Kemalism as the expression of Islamophobia. And the third one, is that it enables us to take the discussion into the non-Western global South. So what do I mean by this? What I mean by this is that the seeming perplexities in the bibliography are, we talk about Islamophobia as a type of racism and uh, racialization that it involves. And the perplexities that immediately get raised in relation to this are, but if you're going to talk about Muslim majority contexts or Islamdom, whatever you want to talk about it, how can you then talk about Islamophobia as racism? And what, what we have to do there is thinking in terms of Kemalism, which we can go back to, obviously, in the discussion. And the other one is, so if Islamophobia is about racism, then quite clearly we can see it in, the, in, the, in white supremacy in the West. But what happens if we're talking about Africa, or if we're talking about India, or if we're talking about China? Where there is the racialization in relation to whiteness? So again, Muslimness enables us to move beyond that one. So those two elements, I think, are the areas that most need the discussion to be uh, driven forward. The um, final point with which I will end is remind, or picking up on, on a line from Wittgenstein. If I draw a boundary line, that is not yet to say what I'm drawing it for. So it could be for containing, it could be for jumping over. It could be for reconfiguring relations and thus meaning. So Muslimness is one such mean of world making. Okay, that's my talk. Thank you so much. Great, thank you. It was a very inspiring speech. And we all know that you had a busy day and you were tired. Thank you so much. That's for my excuse for, for the poverty of the talk. No, thank you so much for giving this opportunity to all of us. Great, so now uh, to don't miss the time,
Uh, let's start by our second presentation. We are honored to host uh, Dr. Obamir Anjum. Today, uh, Dr. Obamir Anjum is the Imam, Imam Khattab Endam Chair of Islamic Study at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Study at the University of Plato. His work focuses on the nexus of theology, ethics, politics, and the law in Islam, with a comparative interest in Western thought. Uh, we all ears. Thank you very much. Bismillah, alhamdulillah. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my talk is going to be nowhere as prepared or as thought out um, uh, as Professor Abdul Karim's, who has been thinking about this category of Muslimness. And honestly, for the first time that I thought about Muslimness as a category was on the train here. Um, but uh, as I started to think about it, and also the fact that it's Iqbal Center uh, that is part of, 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 of uh, this organization, uh, organization of, of this talk. It's very interesting to me. This um, talk I gave at Oxford uh, this Monday, it actually could be seen as thinking about the category of, well, of Muslimness and through Iqbal. So, but here it is. It's also a perspective from the United States. And because I haven't had as much time to think about it, I'm just going to read quickly. In 1831, the landmark case, Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, United States Chief Justice Marshall argued that the Cherokee Nation should be regarded not as a foreign nation, but as a domestic dependent nation. By this he meant, quote, they are in a state of pupillage. Their relation to the United States resembles that of a ward to his guardian. The Indians are our pupillage, under our pupillage, because of our conquest and the demise of the hunting and warrior life that were part of the land. The buffalo is no more, but so too the means of existence that were part of that nomadic life. In his hauntingly powerful book, Radical Hope, University of Chicago philosopher Jonathan Lear meditates on the profound vulnerability of the Indians, specifically the Crow Nation. The real vulnerability was not of need or dependency, but of cultural devastation. The rituals, the practices, the meaning of a way of life, more than just the means for living, have been annihilated by circumstance and conquest. Radical hope is a study of the death of the representative character of a people, of virtue, courage, resilience, and hope in the face of cultural collapse. The leading questions are shaped by Lear's primary subject matter, ancient Greek ethics. What Lear wants to learn from the crow is an account of what in such an event counts for us as good living and what is the nature of the virtues or excellences that constitute it. How does a nation, a people, go on when the concepts and way of life it has lived by for centuries are no more? What does it mean to go on? On the flip side of this, what does it mean to stop when the marks of going on are no longer? These are also the questions that have faced the Muslim Ummah for nearly a century. Professor Lear's book, let us remember, is a sympathetic account 
of the death of a people's character or culture or spirit or way of life told by someone who belongs to the triumphant tribe, in this case, the United States, an account related admiringly of a chief of an annihilated nation. What got young Jonathan Lear started on his journey to understand the culture of coping with defeat was lectured by a remarkable American historian, an icon of environmental history, someone who taught at my own alma mater, University of Wisconsin-Madison, William Cronin, who had in one lecture once related the following words of a Crow chief named Plenty Coup. These are Cronin's words that he's relating from Plenty Coup, the Crow chief. When the buffalo went away, the hearts of my people fell to the ground and they could no longer lift them up again. After this, nothing happened. What did Chief Plentiku mean when he said nothing happened? He lived a full life as an award-winning farmer in the United States, advocating his people's rights. He was not, Jonathan Lear reminds us, depressed, despondent, or neurotic, yet he belonged to a culture and measured his life by a set of virtues and practices that had disappeared. Not only did the practices of the great buffalo hunt and the communal life that sustained it disappear, but that culture and its virtues became incoherent and incomprehensible. The young crow generation would not grow up to measure their lives by those virtues or even admire those who possessed them or even know what they truly were. Yet, Jonathan Lear wants to tell us, Chief Plenty Coup lived on with radical hope, not to recover his lost way of life and meaning, but as a poet of sorts. Lear says, what would be required would be a new Crow poet, one who could take up the Crow past and rather than use it for nostalgia or Esau's mimesis, uh, project it into vibrant new ways for the Crow to live and to be. Lear's radical suggestion, then, is to project the past without nostalgia, but with creativity and hope into the future. Let us explore the insights we might learn about the struggle of Islam from this analogy. Is the Sharia really more comprehensible today, more meaningful, and are Islamic virtues any more vibrant and lively today than the cultures of the lost Native American tribes? Some poignant scholarly voices have suggested that the answer is in the negative. Anthropologist Talal Asad, in his subtle and suggestive works, which now have a wide and multidisciplinary audience, an Islamic legal historian of Palestinian Christian descent, while Halak, in a more forceful and direct way, have argued that not only the practices, institutions, and bodies of knowledge but also the epistemic and psychological conditions that made sense of the Sharia have been obliterated by the colonial and then post-colonial experience. This loss was only symbolized by the loss of the Ottoman Caliphate nearly a century, exactly a century ago, or 99 years. South Asian philosopher-poet Muhammad Iqbal, in his epic-defining poem Shikwa, and then... Jawabi Shikwa, Musulman's 
complaint to God and then God's answer depicted this sense of loss. To quote from Jawab, your preachers are no longer ripe in judgment, nor electrifying at heart, nor fiery in speech. Azan yet sounds, but absent Bilal's soul. Philosophy there is, but without Ghazali's conviction. Your mosques lament their emptiness, for gone are those exemplars of Arab godliness. This excerpt from Jawabe Shikwa, God's answer to Muslims' prayer, shows something quite audacious, perhaps what Jonathan Lear would call Iqbal's radical hope, Iqbal's judgment, was not that of an Asad or Halak, um, nor does he want to stay with Plenty Ku's response after this nothing happened, but rather his response was to make God renew his promise and call Muslims to action. A century later, his words remain sadly pertinent. Although well-worn and ritualized as if part of a loved, one, loved one's obituary, they conceal much more, as I will suggest. Against this backdrop, let me turn to the question of how Muslims um, can be Muslims or what is Muslimness, for themselves and about themselves, about their past. Again, how can Muslims think about themselves and about their past in a way that makes any coherent sense, in a way that their political aspirations, their moral vocabulary, their social practices are any more than, to, to use Lear's words, fake imitation. Lest we think that I have exaggerated too much, perhaps by drawing the analogy, uh, analogy of the Ummah of nearly two billion people with that of the Crow Nation, let us recall the unironic title of a book uh, by Professor Jonathan Lawrence of Boston College, published in 2020 by Princeton University Press, called Coping with Defeat, Sunni Islam, Roman Catholicism, and the Modern State. This book is a virtuoso performance of a political scientist written with the same sympathy and insight as Lear's book about Crow's cultural death and with almost the same message, how Muslims need to accept and cope with defeat. He writes about Sunni Islam, but that's almost irrelevant to his message. What he's really talking about is how um, the great cultural heritage, the great cultural institution, the caliphate underwent similar transformations as Roman Catholicism and both uh, great religions that controlled uh, Islamdom and Christendom um, only uh, a century earlier uh, and for centuries uh, were now coping with defeat and the book is an advice, um, it's, a, it's a description of a political scientist, but also an advice on how to cope with defeat. Against this backdrop of an apical loss and the possibility of radical hope in its wake, I now proceed to explore 
how Muslims have responded to this loss and why thinking politically as Muslims or what I call umatically is perhaps the only way to recover from that loss. Let us first ask, is it an exaggeration that the nearly 2 billion Muslims in 50 plus Muslim majority states face an ex extinction of meaning, a culture of death like that of the Crow Nation or the Native Americans at large. And then what is needed to avoid the cultural death, the civilizational extinction, the relevance uh, to the, 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 the irrelevance of meaning and virtue that Muslims find in their books, in their scripture, in their stories, um, and in their communal practices. Is Professor Wael Halab right that the very epistemic conditions in which Islam and the Sharia made sense have disappeared? To resolve the puzzle, to prove Halak wrong, as it were, and to demonstrate that Muslims can think as Muslims, we must think as Muslims. This is the dilemma, the circularity. It is an act of will rather than argument that becomes necessary. One response may be that Halak is just wrong in the very premise of his claim, either because Islam requires no epistemic conditions, because Islam uh, is universal and rational, and hence its logic immediately accessible to all humans in any condition. That would be the response that many of those who thought in enlightenment terms tried to give. But this reason is harder and harder to believe, if only because <clears throat> if we can think through the metaphor of a patient of dementia, who may be logical in his or her personal uh, immediate circumstances, but without being functional, without being an adult, without knowing who they really were. This is precisely because of what the example of Crow of the Crow Nation impresses upon us. One may live on as biomass without living on with fullness of virtue, beauty, depth, and meaning. In fact, precisely because neither memories nor desires will leave us as humans, the only way for us to live with not only hope and wisdom, but also forgiveness, uh, rather than anguish, anger, and revenge, um, either directed at the colonizer or more frequently at each other, is to overcome our collective dementia. Let us consider the response to Halak's challenge, namely that Western colonialism and cultural and intellectual hegemony have not really caused the kind of rupture being claimed. The destruction of Muslim institutions of learning, of culture, family, and appending of Muslim traditions of literature, politics, and social existence, and the cutting up of the Muslim lands into 50-some nations, states, foreign institutions with no indigenous roots, and constant attempts by these often Orwellian states to recreate Muslim subjects into their image, none of this has in fact caused a total irrepar irre irreparable rupture. The Muslims are still not, one could argue, in the same place as the crow. This response, however, 
is one that I characterize as one of sheer will, one that requires audacious hope rather than a decisive argument, for there can be none. We should also note that contrary to Halak, some argue that perhaps it is the case that modernity has in some respects been a blessing in disguise and has illuminated aspects of Islam and that offered, opportun- and offered opportunities to Muslims to grow and become more properly Muslim than the decadent and hollowed out Muslim civilization of the pre-colonial period. A world that had become colonizable before it became colonized, to use the words of the Algerian Muslim thinker Malik bin Nabi. But if so, how would we know that is the case? That's all I have. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. It was a really inspiring conversation, and we are delighted to have you. We want to just thank you. Say thank you to joining us for this critical Muslim studies symposium. This is an episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast wing of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Your host has been Hizamir, and the episode has been sound engineered by Zubair Vakil. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes, and please leave a like and a rating.